Today's sacred text message is taken from the chapter known as Ar-Ra'd, which is thunder. And it's the 41st ayah in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَوَلَمْ يَرَوْ أَنَّ نَأْتِ الْأَرْضَ نَنْقُصُهَا مِنَ الطَّرَافِهَا haven't they seen how we diminish the earth from its edges? And this, and then it says, And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who uh, makes uh, the ultimate judge. And, and no one can overrule his judgment. And he is uh, quick uh, to reckoning. So, What's interesting about this verse is that while we know that there is a constant diminishment of the edges of the earth with the ocean, so the, there's always the ocean is eroding, there's a constant erosion. So the outward meaning is perfectly um, understandable, but this was obviously not something that the Mufassirun understood because this comes out of geology and understanding about erosion and things like that. I mean, I, I suppose somebody could work that out by just looking at beaches and things like that, but most people thought it was always like that. Um, that, that would be the average thinking. So the way that they understood that, and this comes out of uh, some really extraordinary uh, statements about the Salaf, that they understood the, the, um, the nuqsan or the diminishment of it to be the death of scholars. That, that as, as, as the scholars die, there's, there's a, a loss of, of a, a part of the main. The, there, there's a loss of, of, uh, of the continent, something of the continent, when, when we lose these great scholars. And so I just wanted to do a reflection on the loss of a really, really, truly great scholar uh, who... We've lost a, f a few just in the last few weeks. I know Sheikh Rayyan of Egypt, Rahimullah. I did not know him, but uh, I saw pictures of me. He was just this just beautiful face. Simahum fi wujuhihim. You know, their, their, their signs are in their faces. And uh, I, I know that uh, Sheikh Walid, uh, my brother uh, on the East Coast, uh, told me that he had studied with him and that he he was really truly one of the giants. He was the Maliki Faqih teacher uh, uh, in Al Qahira, and then also there was uh, some of the Habaib have passed away, and I'm sure there's other scholars around the world because scholars, a lot of them are elderly, especially the great ones, and they are we're, we're losing them. But the scholar that I'd like to talk about today was one of my teachers, uh, even though I studied with him for a very brief time, but I did study. Uh, considerably with his son. So I have a connection to him, a very strong connection through his son, and that was Sheikh Marabd Ahmed Fal al-Amsami. Uh, he, he, he had a really extraordinary madrasa in what, what's known as Ayn al-Khashba in, uh, in central Mauritania. And uh, he was just a really stunning scholar. Um, one of the, the, 
the things I think that everybody who visited him was struck by was one, his countenance. He had a really beautiful face, uh, a lot of light. People talk about he has light in his face and uh, there was genuinely light there for people that, that did have the opportunity to see him and experience him personally. Some of that comes through with some of the photographs of him, but he, um, he, w he had studied with Marab Tarhaj in the, in the 1960s. He's, he spent, I think he went, he, he went there in 1958 and, and stayed until 1968. He actually married uh, Marab Tarhaj's daughter, and so he, he gave, uh, she gave birth to a really extraordinary uh, young man who is now a full-fledged scholar in his own right, and really, I think, an exceptional scholar. And that's Marabta Abdullahi Wal Dahmedna, who teaches in Tuaymarat now. He's the son of Marabta Ahmed Fal, and he and he lived with me in uh, California for some time. He actually memorized Al Bukhari in my house, so it was quite extraordinary to see him just memorizing this book by rote. Um, but really, really amazing uh, scholar and just a, a man of incredible piety. But Marabta Ahmed Fal studied for 10 years, and when we say studied for 10 years, I'm talking about five days a week for several hours every day. It's much more intense the way the Mauritanians study than the way we study in the West. Um, a lot of it involves rote memorization, and, and some people look uh, at the Mauritanians, I've heard some of the Eastern people say this about the, the Mauritanians, and, and I've always felt it was there's a, there's a tinge of envy in it. Um, they they say things like, oh well, they memorize, but they you know they don't really understand it, or, and things like that, which is absolutely uh, calumny against the Mauritanian scholars. Because while that is true for some uh, students of knowledge, and and always will be, there are people that have good memories but poor understanding, and there's people that have really excellent understanding and poor memories. So you, you get, in fact, it's quite rare to get the two together. Uh, according to Imam Siyuti, who said that he was one of those rare events uh, himself. But in Mauritania, it's not rare. It's, it's actually the norm amongst the great scholars. And, and Morabit in Mauritania is not your average person. The Morabit is somebody who actually has a college and is, is teaching and has reached a, a real level of mastery. And, and, and these, these are people that it's hard for us in the West to imagine them. So just to give you an example, they, they memorize the Quran early in the, using the first five years uh, of their study. So, but their memorization of Quran is not like the Quran is memorized in Egypt or in Pakistan or in other places. When the Mauritanians memorize the Quran, they memorize both riwayah of, of Nafi'. So Asim uh, has two Ruwat. Uh, People that memorize uh, the Quran in most places only know one of the riwayat of Imam Asim, whereas the Mauritanians learn both Qalun and Warsh. Uh, and then they study Tajweed, and then they study Rasam. So they don't consider you a Hafid unless you can actually write the entire Quran without making any orthographical mistakes. Because they say that's the meaning of Hafid, is somebody who preserves the Quran, not just the the, the sounds of the Qur'an, but actually how to write it so that the Rasul al-Uthmani could never disappear from the earth. So if all the Mus'hafs were burnt, uh, la qadr Allah, but if all the Mus'hafs on the planet were burnt, 
there would be Mauritanian scholars that could write it from scratch uh, and, and, and uh, reprint it as it was. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's a reality. So he studied with his father first, uh, Marabta Ahmed Fan, and he learned the basic text of, uh, that they study there. When, when, when the Mauritanians first, they, they learn the Quran, but then they learn, like, uh, they, they'll read like Al-Akhdari in, uh, in, in prayer, to learn a basic prayer, and it has a beautiful little section on, on uh, you know what we believe, and then on some what would traditionally be called tasawwuf or th- things about purification of the heart, and it has a wonderful section in uh, about uh, the illuminating nature of the prayer. So that was the f- the text, the first text that I studied, was that, and and I, I didn't do the poem. I actually did the nathar and and uh, memorized the whole nathar, which was a little harder than the poem. A lot of the students studied the poem. But the, um, the and then he learned, uh, the next one was Ibn Ashar, and then he uh, studied like creed. They usually study initially a, a basic creed, uh, like Al-Bulaym, uh, which is from one of their texts. And then the Ajarumiya in grammar. And then when he did those basic things, he set out to study with Murabt al-Hajj, Wul-Fahful in uh, Taganat. And he, he studied with him uh, all of the mutun that they study in the, in the Mauritanian madrasa, uh, which included memorizing uh, the entire text of Khalil, uh, which uh, is, is a formidable task in and of itself. And he, he actually uh, studied it twice with Murabt al-Hajj. So he read it once with memorization and then did a second uh, because it's a difficult text and uh, it's, it's written in a very, very abstruse, succinct language that, uh, that uh, just reading the text without commentary is, is not uh, easy. Um, some of it can be read, but some of it definitely needs uh, some type of commentary to fill in the gaps. Uh, and then he also studied Usul al-Fiqh. He mastered all of the um, the texts of Arabic that they use there. So that would mean the Ajarumiya, Mulhat al-Arab of Imam al-Hariri, which is over 300 lines uh, memorized. And usually they, they learn with those all of the shawahid or the examples from poetry and things. And then he learned the al of Ibn Malik. And then he, he studied the Ihmirar of Bin Buna, which is uh, uh, like all of the things that are uh, absent from the, uh, the Al-Fiya. That are in there, so there's a lot of really interesting. Uh, so the total of it is literally several thousand lines of poetry, just in grammar to master grammar, and then he studied uh, logic, uh, and then he studied rhetoric. These these are the real fundamental sciences of the 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 of our tradition, Islamic scholastic tradition, which we in the West call the trivium. So these are also uh, the fundamental sciences. So we share that with the West, and that's one of the things that we're really trying to revive in Zaytuna, because while it's still taught to a certain degree in a lot, a lot of the traditional schools in in the Muslim world, uh, unfortunately, it's it's uh, it's really, really rarely taught anymore in the West, except by uh, Christians who recognize the importance of it to study their own tradition. And then in 1968, he went and he established his own madrasa after studying with Murab al-Hajj for several years and uh, began taking students. Very profoundly pious man, had a deeply dyed spirituality. Uh, one of the things that was noted about him was that uh, 
he really took on the practices of his teacher. Marabd uh, al I was told by one of the people that had known him for over 70 years, he said that he is absolutely certain that nobody's ever heard him speak ill of any human being. Marabd uh, al And Marabd Ahmed Fal was like that, which is really just a stunning testimony to uprightness because it's just so difficult for people not to uh, speak about other people. Sidi Ahmed Zarruq says one of the most dangerous questions you'll ever ask is how so-and-so because he said it opens the door to, to backbiting and people now they backbite with impunity they don't really think about it they talk about people uh, uh, and uh, oh, even rolling the eyes is considered backbiting if somebody's name is mentioned all these type things so it's not just the words and now we have texting uh, to people to help them facilitate their sinfulness and uh, and internet comments things like that it's it's really amazing so but he 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 was noted for that like just total uprightness he comes from the Masuma clan which the Zawaya in Mauritania are the Zawaya are basically the the scholastic uh, masters of the Mauritanian tradition. So Mauritania has a very interesting, it's actually very similar to uh, how uh, India, the Hindus, have their stratification. So you have the, uh, the, the Brahman, and those are the Zawaya clans. The, those are the, the people of study and devotion, intellect. And then you have the, the, what they call the Arab, which are the Kishtiya in the, in the caste system that they have in India. These are the warrior clans. And then you have the, the Sunnah, which are like the uh, Vyashya clans in uh, Hinduism. And then you have the, uh, the, um, the, um, you have the, uh, the Haratin, and then you have the, uh, you have the Zanaga, which um, uh, the Zanaga... Zanaga also are akin to the Vaishya class probably but they, they really stratify and it, it, it was originally introduced uh, many centuries ago as a way of just having a, a functioning society so each group it was, it was really like um, a kind of um, in management uh, it's basically a division of labor Essentially, that's what, that's, what, that's what it would be called. One of the things about Hinduism, which is interesting, even though they codified it in their religion, these are natural um, uh, phenomena in every human society. So if you look in the United States, for instance, we have the warrior class. The Kashtiya would be the military and the police. And then we have like the Brahmins. Those are all the, the, the educators, the university professors, uh, and also the... Um, you know, the, uh, the political class is supposed to be like that, even though they very often uh, are wanting. And then you have the Vaishya, which would be like the merchants and the commercial class. And then you have like the, um, like people who serve our utilities, people that do those difficult jobs that a lot of people don't want to do. People like sanitation engineers, uh, people that work in uh, junkyards and and other places. I mean, those are all jobs that need to be done, but it's a difficult job for people to do. Uh, so these are natural phenomena uh, in, in societies. It's a very uh, unusual aspect of life on Earth that, we, that these things don't go away for some reason. I mean, obviously, 
you don't want to see it proliferate. So a healthy society should do everything they can to mitigate these phenomena like homelessness and things like that. But they seem to be part of the world as far as we can tell because they've always been around. Um, so the Mauritanians have that interesting uh, diversification of talent. And so the Brahmin class, this Zawaya class, are they really, really take study very seriously. And, and Murabta Ahmed Fad was a great example of that, of somebody who really, really went deeply into the sciences of Islam and could teach without notes all of these different sciences. Um, I once heard uh, uh, Sheikh uh, Muhammad Hassan Waldedu told me in my house, he visited me once, in my house, and he said to me, you know, that that he could dictate 40 books in 40 sciences right now, and he wasn't boasting; he was just saying, just making a statement of fact. And and there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, uh, a Mauritanian, some, a master like Sheikh Abdul bin Bayya could easily right now uh, do an entire course on usul al-fiqh without having any recourse to notes. In fact. His book, which is called Amali al-Dilalat, which is now a, a textbook in Al-Azhar and several other colleges, Amali are dictations. He literally gave that book, were, were lectures that he gave without any notes. And then it was transcribed, uh, edited, and, and put into a book. And he can do it off the top of his head. I was once sitting with him, and somebody mentioned something that he'd read in a book by another scholar, I won't mention his name, people might recognize it, but he, he mentioned another scholar, uh, and, and, and I said, I, I don't think that's the dominant opinion. I, I think that's a weak opinion. And, and I said, but let's wait till Sheikh Abdullah comes in and ask him, because so, he was out. And so he came in, this was in Jeddah, and he came in, and I, asked, and I said, um, it was actually my friend Ahmed Shugeri who had asked the question. I said, Ahmed Shugeri was reading uh, this book, and he, he mentioned that the scholar said this, and Sheikh Abdul bin Bayya said, hmm, he said, well, that, there's eight opinions on that, on that, on that topic, and, uh, and then he enumerated the eight, and then he said, but that's probably the weakest, so it's surprising that he would mention that opinion. Another time I saw a very notable Azhari scholar who was younger, who came in and gave Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya his book on Usul al-Fiqh. This is a true story. And Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya opened the book and, and he read, one, just in the middle of the book, and he read a, a section and, and, he sa and then he just said to him, and, and he would never do this like uh, other than I think to, to, as a teaching uh, the, the reason he did this, but he, he literally opened the book and he said, hmm, you're quoting Imam al-Ghazali here, but that's actually not his opinion. Uh, he mentioned that in, in, uh, in, 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 uh, in this book, but actually his, his final opinion that he landed on is, is in the Mustasfa and it actually goes against this opinion. So you should make that correction the next time you... Uh, uh, print the book because that was that was his uh, that was not his position at the at the end of his life um, but that's an example of a, a real master and this is part of the danger of writing books when, before we're prepared to write books because uh, it's just the amount of knowledge you have to do especially when it's uh, Islamic knowledge uh, one of the interesting things about Murabta Ahmed Fahl rahimahullah is that uh, he didn't write much he did write uh, he has a lot of responsa or what we would call fatawa he didn't write much because the Mauritanians 
the ulama tend to teach all the time, and so they don't have a lot of time to write uh, when they run their schools. And uh, I once asked his son if he would consider writing a commentary on Ibn Asher that had dalils. And he said, Astaghfirullah, who am I to write a commentary on Ibn Asher? And, and, and that's how they feel. There's a real uh, sincere humility uh, because they understand the level of knowledge that you have to do to have to, um, to do such things. And also the fear of just having to be responsible for that. Uh, in the afterlife of you know, giving people guidance. So these are, these are momentous things. But he was a beautiful man, and, and I'll just mention uh, something uh, really interesting. Uh, and I, I, I've written an obituary about him, and, and you can, if you go onto Sandala's website, uh, you can find the obituary and see some, some pictures of him. But uh, one of the, and I'll just close in saying this, that one of the really interesting things is that uh, I, I was sitting with him once, and, and we, were, we were talking about Marabd al-Hajj, who he had studied with, and, and I had studied f- for, with him for a much shorter time um, than he had. But nonetheless, uh, we, we, we both benefited uh, you know, immensely in, in the time that I spent with him, uh, which was much less. But uh, just any time with such people is just such a benefit. But he then talked about how fortunate we were to have him because Marabd al-Hajj at the time was still alive. And he, and he said that you know, these people are the warathatul anbiya, as if he wasn't one of them. And then, and then, and then he recited these lines, لَعَمْرُكَ مَرَّزِيَةُ فَقْدُ مَالٍ وَلَا فَرَسٌ تَمُوتُ وَلَا بَعِيرُ وَلَكِنَّ الرَّزِيَةَ فَقْدُ قَرْمٍ يَمُوتُ بِمَوْتِ خَرْقٌ كَثِيرُ Which basically translates as uh, calamity is not loss of wealth or the death of a mare or a dromedary. The real calamity is the death of, of, a, of, a, of a sayyid, a qarm, somebody who's a, a sayyid, like a, a master. Now, the sayyid in Arabic is the one that you flee to in times of tribulation, who, 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 a source of refuge, and that's what the great scholars are. And obviously the Ahlul Bayt are called Sada because um, traditionally Muslims would يتوصلوا بهم like Omar تواصل Abbas. He said we used to make tawassal with the Prophet and now we make tawassal with Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet So the Sada traditionally were people that people would go to them in times of, of calamity and they would ask them to pray in hopes that because they were relatives of the Prophet it would be answered. So the Sayyid is somebody that you need in difficult times. And, uh, and he said, so the, the real calamity is the death of a Sayyid, who when he dies, multitudes die with him. Mm. So, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless Marabd Ahmed Fahr and give him light in his grave and, and may all the men and women that benefited from him uh, be in his mizan on the day of judgment, in his scales, inshallah. And may we be uh, worthy of transmitting whatever he might have taught us, inshallah. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all of you. These, these scholars, uh, many of them are, are leaving us now. And, and, and to be really, really, and, I, and, I, and I'll say this in all absolute sincerity. When I went to Mauritania, 
for the first time, which was in the early 80s. I I saw something that really was quite unusual. People think I romanticized it, and but they don't they don't know what what I saw there. Um, and just to give you a glimpse of it, when I was in uh, a, t- a, a small town called Geru, and one night we were, I, I had I was with somebody named Muhammad Masumi who actually died from cancer, and is buried in uh, Granada. Uh, he's from Marabtar Haj's clan. And he and I walked up there. There's near Sheikh Khatri uh, bin Boyba's house. We walked up onto this huge mountain of sand. It was just, you know, Kathib. And uh, it overlooked this stunning city that you just couldn't have imagined it because it's so vivid in my mind what I saw right now. Just this is almost 40 years later, and it's just so vivid in my mind that I can almost see it. And it was all mud houses. There was no electricity. This was after Isha, and it was really, really dark. The the diamond sky was completely illuminated uh, with stars. And if you've ever been in deep desert on a clear night, you know what I'm talking about. Just extraordinary. And I'm overlooking this beautiful city with, and there was enough moonlight to, to just see the city. It seemed as if from every single house, the Quran was being recited, and it was like a humming of bees. The entire village was reciting the Quran. And it was, I literally, I just started weeping. <laughs> Just to see something like that, like a whole city reciting the Quran at night. And uh, years later, I came back to the city and every house had a satellite dish on it. And there were all these electrical wires everywhere. And there wasn't that, that Quran anymore. And I just, I felt like, what does this mean? Because for hundreds of years, that's the way that town was. And just to change in such a rapid time was something so strange to see. And so when I say this, I mean, I can honestly say, people can say I romanticized it or not. I know what I saw, and I know what was there, and I know what's been lost. And even though there's still a lot of good in Mauritania, there's still a deep religious culture, the changes that I've seen in Mauritania, I, I just, they're, they're overwhelming.